0: Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Grace Bible Church. Uh, I love that song. After after the first service, the nine o'clock service, there were five uh, students from Baylor University who who came up afterwards, and uh, they were they were all fired up. And they, they told me that they go to um, it's called Harris Creek, and it, it's giant. I mean, it's just super big church, and they've got really dynamic music. And so when they said that, I was like, oh boy, what are they gonna say? And um, and they were like, man, it is so fun to hear the congregation sing. And, um, and so I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. Um, and I, I think it was probably over that song. Uh, what an incredible song. Welcome again to Grace Bible Church. Really glad to see you here. Uh, let's pray and we will turn our attention to 2 Corinthians six fourteen through 18. Bow your heads with me. God, it is it is right that we would sing of your holiness before we, uh, we look at your text. And any text speaks to your holiness. But Father, this text specifically, I, I, it talks about holiness. And it, it talks about our holiness. But Father, I pray that we would never see our holiness as anything but a byproduct of your holiness. <clears throat> so God, please just help us to just to sit in awe of you and, and to wonder at your goodness to us. And I pray that our lives would be lived in accordance with your gospel because we're, we're so enamored by it. Um, help us today, Lord. Uh, I pray that your spirit would move in profound ways through the understanding we will gain from your word as we study it. And, and Father, we just ask that this would glorify you. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I got back on Wednesday from back-to-back hilltop adventure trips. They're the kayak trips that we use to try to teach disciple-making principles. And um, the first of the two weeks that I was out there was with a bunch of college students. And it was a ton of fun. Hayden Podcotter and I led it. And man, it was like a privilege, y'all. It uh, it was so fun because every one of these kids, there were there were eight guys and four girls, they they all want to follow Jesus. They, they really do. Some of them are, are already kind of there and, and a few of them want it, but they're, they've, they're kind of in process. You know, they're, they're like turning the corner on really living for Jesus. They they've figured out in the first year or two of college that living by the world's standards doesn't make them very happy. Like Everyone says, oh, do this. It's so fun. You know, like it, it's going to make you happy and it, it makes you miserable. And they've started to figure that out, and, and so they're like, man, I don't want to do that anymore. I want something different. And they want to chase hard after Jesus. They, they want to live for Christ, but they're scared. They're scared, and specifically, they're scared that if they wholeheartedly chase after Jesus, they think that all their fratty friends are going to drop them like hot rocks. I mean, like, they are, they are so nervous about that. And after two or three or four of them kind of had that same sort of testimony, it dawned on me. Something that I'd kind of forgotten, if I'm being honest, it dawned on me. What I am asking them, and make no mistake, it's what I'm asking you, is a big ask. It, it can be a little bit of a scary ask. Honestly, I'm asking Christians to live heroically heroically. I'm not asking you to blend in. I'm, I'm not asking you to look normal according to the world standards. I'm actually asking you to live heroically. And, and all these kids, I mean, I get to sit and listen to them process as they count the cost, as they count the cost for living heroically, heroically. Hey, look, if, if that's something you struggle with, because it's not just college kids. I mean, I'm 54 years old and I work for a church. I struggle with this. I really do. It, so if, if you're like me and you're like these college kids and you struggle with the claims of Christ that would call you honestly to live heroically in very normal ways, I think this passage is for you. Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 14 through 18. We're just going to start with the first half of verse 14. Paul writes and says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers... So we're just going to start with that. It's an imperative, meaning it's a commandment, meaning it's not an option. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. The, the word unequally yoked is heterozougeo. Heterozugeo. It's all one word. It's kind of smushed together. Heteros is where we, it means different. I'm a heterosexual because I'm attracted to Mary and she's different than me. That, that's what it means. So heteros means different. Zugos is a yoke. So, so differently yoked. Do not be differently yoked. It's actually a reference from Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 10, which says, you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. Isn't that a weird thing to put in the Bible? Like, like, oh, okay. Good to know. Like here's God's point in Deuteronomy. Donkeys and oxen have different gates. They have different pulling powers. So if, if you hook them together, your rows are always going to end up crooked. Like the, I, I guess the oxen is more powerful than the donkey. If you tell me otherwise, I'll believe you. I mean, I literally have no idea. But, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to create crooked rows, right? They're just different animals. They're different animals. So you don't hook them together. You don't, you don't yoke them up together because you're going to end up having crooked rows. Now, here's the question I have for you. Do you think God's really into straight rows? Like, is is the key to Israel being what Israel is supposed to be before the Goim, the nations, straight rows? I'm going to drop an interpretive bomb on you here, okay? You ready for this? I, I think this is so profound. Deuteronomy 22, verse 10, when it says, you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together, isn't primarily about an ox and a donkey. I, I don't think that's the main deal. It's not ultimately about farming. So what's it about? What's it about? If you look at Deuteronomy 22, you can see that there are several kind of commandments there that are all getting at the same point. Here's the underlying assumption in Deuteronomy 22 and therefore in our passage. The underlying assumption is that believers are different than unbelievers. Now, I use believer and unbeliever because it says do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And so he's talking to believers, people who have believed in Jesus, and he's saying don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And and the point is if he's an unbeliever, you're unequally yoked because you're different. I don't know if the unbeliever is a donkey and we're the oxen, or maybe they're the oxen and, and we're the donkey. doesn't matter. doesn't matter. We're just different. That's that's the fundamental principle. Look, Look at the rest of this and just tell me if it's not about the difference. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols. The, the point in all of these things is they don't fit together because they're so different. Light and darkness, different. Like that, that's, that's what Paul is getting at. Now, that's not universally true, Me- meaning not everything about you is different from non-believers. If, if you're a believer, you've got some things in common. For instance, you might all like the same sports. I'll give you that. There's nothing wrong with that. If, if, if you love to go to uh, Texas A&M football games, like in, so do a bunch of pagans, that's great. Same thing. Yeah, y'all, that was not a joke, I promise. I was about to say, if you like to go to the University of Texas football games, and, and a bunch of pagans go there too. Like, I'm not saying we're all that different. Like, like we, we like the same sports. We can attend the same schools. There's nothing wrong. You're like, you don't have to go to a Christian school to obey this principle. Like that, that's, that's not the point. A lot of us vote the same way as a bunch of pagans, a bunch of non-Christians, okay? Like that, There are things that we have in common. There's nothing wrong with that, but here's the deal: Our motives and our values, they've got to be different. They just absolutely have to be different. Why do I say that? Well, I say that because Paul's already said that. If you if you look back into 2 Corinthians chapter 5, you'll look at verse 14 and 15. And, and Paul has basically laid it out already for us. Like here's how we're different. For the love of Christ controls us. Now he is speaking here to Christians. The love of Christ, if you're a Christian, controls you. Does the love of Christ control non-Christians? The answer is no. That, that's just the truth. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that the one has died for all, the one there is Jesus, clearly, therefore all have died. That's us. So the one died for all, therefore all have died, and he died, Jesus died for all, that those who, might, who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him. Who for their sake died and was raised. So we, the living, live for the glory of him who died for us. Is that true of non Christians? No, they don't believe in Jesus. They, they don't believe he died for them. They, they don't believe we therefore should live for them. Like it's just different. Non Christians deny all of that. And Paul's argument then is don't hitch your wagon to that. That's, that's what he's talking about. Now, look, the hardest part of this imperative, and it's, it's still an imperative, it's a command, is to know exactly how and when to apply it. And so I, I'm going to tell you where I don't think it applies, okay? Just because I think you can over-apply this and get into some real, like, cultural withdrawing sort of fundamentalism, and it's, it, it, gets, it gets super weird. You can be friends with non-Christians, okay? That, That is not a good application of this passage. Like, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers doesn't forbid you from being friends with non-Christians. I actually think God wants us to be friends with non-Christians. We built pickleball courts out there in hopes that non-Christians would come onto our church campus and play pickleball with a bunch of Christians, develop relationships for the sake of the gospel. That's why we did it. We didn't build those pickleball courts so that Christians could play pickleball exclusively with, non, with Christians. This, is, this isn't us trying to protect you from the world. It's inviting the world into what we do. Okay? So, like, just a little sidebar here. Every once in a while, I'll hear people, like, bellyaching because they're like, I, you know, all these people who don't go to our church are, are playing pickleball at our church. And I, I'm like, I think you've kind of missed the point here. <laughs> like, like, this is not about you getting exclusive rights. You know, like, mix it up. Love people. Come on. That's not just for pickleball. That's for life. Golly. Here's another place where this doesn't apply. You can work for companies owned by non-Christians. You can. You can work for companies owned by non-Christians. You don't have to work just for Christian companies. I I really believe that. Show them Jesus by your effort, by the constancy of your character. Like, be in the world but not of the world. And if you work, work in such a way that God is glorified so that people will know that there is a God who exists. Your work matters. Now, let's talk about where it does apply. The most common application, it's an application you've heard before here and many other places, is in marriage. Okay? And and the reason it, it does apply to marriage is because in the old testament, uh, Jewish boys marrying, you know, Assyrian and Babylonian Hussies, that, that was a big problem. Okay. <laughs> and I guess those, you know, Assyrians and the Babylonians were easy on the eyes or something. And and like there's this gravitational pull for, for Jewish boys to, to take You know, non-Jewish wives, and it was a problem. I mean, God is talking about that all the time. Like, marry people who believe in Me, Yahweh says, because it's hard enough to follow Me, and and if the person that you're yoked with is going somewhere else, that's that's really really challenging. So don't do that. Marry people who believe in Yahweh. How does that apply today? I think you can get ahead of this, but I'll say it anyway. I don't care how hot she is. If she doesn't love Jesus, don't date her. Don't marry her. Like, Just stay away. And, and the reverse is true. I don't, I don't care how hot he is. I don't care how much money he makes. I don't care how nice he is. I don't, I don't care what club he's a member of. Like, None of that matters. If he doesn't love Jesus supremely more than you, you got no business dating him. That is God's kindness. He he is not trying to make you miserable. He is trying to protect you. I I promise you, do not be unequally yoked. Now, here's where this is really hard. Like, hard, not hard for y'all, just hard to, to actually figure out when and when not this applies. This might apply in a business partnership. So you can work for a company owned by a non-Christian, but what about getting into a partnership with someone who is not a Christ follower? I can't say you should never do it. I don't think you can say that. But I do think that your values as a Christian and his or her values as a non-Christian should be different. Like your values should definitely be different if that person doesn't follow Jesus. And so at the very least... You have to say on the front end as you're going into a partnership, I see this company, my role in this company, as being for the glory of God. It's it's not primarily to make me money. It's not primarily to make you money. It is ultimately, I, I want to operate according to biblical principles, and I am going to stand on that. Now, there might be someone who goes, I get it, I don't totally buy into your worldview, but I, I, I buy into those principles. And, and maybe at that point you can do it. Maybe. But I think you got to be upfront, And I've seen a lot of people go into business with, with people who do not share their values, but just have great acumen in whatever field it is. And it hadn't gone well. So I'm, I'm just warning you, this, this might apply more than some of you would like to think and your, your priorities as a Christian should be different they should be different and they should be stated up front okay, let's look at verses 16 through 18 verses 16 through 18 are basically going to ask answer three important questions and here are the questions what are we, who are we how then shall we live what are we, who are we How then shall we live? Let's let's start with what are we. Let's look at verse 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? That's from the last section. And then it says, For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. What are we? We are the temple of God. We've heard that before, but do we really get it? What does it actually mean? I'm going to try to give you a different angle on this because we've talked about this a little bit before. In John chapter 2, if you remember John chapter 2, Jesus cleanses the temple. Remember, they're, they're selling things. They're, they're kind of using the temple as a rich quick kind of deal and there's vendors in there and you know they're like upselling people and and Jesus comes in you know what for whatever reason he blows a fuse he he goes crazy he's he's dumping tables over he's he's making a real spectacle uh, of that time it's it's a big deal and the religious leaders who you know are in charge of the temple and so he's disrupting their work they come to Jesus after he has turned over all these tables and he said they say What sign do you show us for doing this? Like you better be able to back this up. Like you you can't just come and act the fool. They would say that he was a fool, like with without showing us under what authority or by what authority you do this. So, So you better give us a sign. You better give us a sign. Do you remember what Jesus' response is? Jesus says, in response to the religious leaders asking for a sign, very interesting, destroy this temple. And in three days, I'll raise it. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it. What is it? What's the it there? It's not that hard. It's just like English. The temple. Thank you. Todd Richards, coming through. I, I love that. Yeah, the temple, right? Destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise this temple. Now, what's Jesus talking about? Well, it is the temple, and so he's talking about the temple, but, but three days, if, if, if you're a Christian for like a minute, and, and you hear three days, you're probably going, that's probably about the resurrection. And you would be right. You would be right. Send a trick question. It's about Jesus' resurrection. Jesus, though, is also saying he is the temple there. Like, that that's fundamentally what he's saying. What is the temple? The temple is the greatest, most profound manifestation of the presence of God that exists. Here's here's what's interesting. He's absolutely talking about his resurrection. But if you've been to a baptism here, you know that the symbolism of baptism is that when Jesus died and was crucified and and symbolized by going underwater, Romans chapter 6 verses 1 through 4 says we were crucified with him. And then it also says that as Jesus was raised to walk in newness of life, we too have been raised to walk in newness of life. So as he died, we died. And as he was given new life, resurrection life, so we were given new and resurrection life. And so he is saying, you destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days, talking about his resurrection. But I think he's talking about our resurrection too there. In fact, I think his resurrection is absolutely intrinsically tied with our resurrection. The sign then that Jesus offers back then is that in three days he will bring a resurrection that will be the sign of his power. And I think that is his resurrection, and I think that it is our resurrection, and that's why we are called the temple of God. Because the temple... The dwelling place of God, because we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. The temple, the dwelling place of God, is the place where God's purity and His power and His presence are most profoundly manifest. And we're the temple of God. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, we are the temple of God. So Jesus says, in response to what sign do you give that you have authority? He says, my resurrection and the church the transformation of sinners that they might be the people of God that they might collectively demonstrate the manifestation of the presence and power and purity of God that's my sign that's you that's you that matters when, when the text says that we are the temple of God see dignity, see joy. I mean, what an honor. What an honor that we would be called the temple of God, the place where his purity and power and presence are most profoundly manifest. We are ultimately, this text says, holy. Holy, not perfect. Everyone thinks holy means perfect. Get that out of your mind. It's not what it means. It means set apart. Holy means set apart. For for different purposes. If they're oxen, we're donkeys. If they're donkeys, we're oxen. Different. That's, that's what it means. And ultimately, not just different, but distinguished because we get to be the manifestation of God most high. That's what we are. We're the temple of God. And what a privilege. Now let's answer the question, who are we? We're going to skip verse 17. We're going to go to verse 18. Who are we? And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. By the blood of Jesus, verse 18 says that we are sons and daughters of the Lord Almighty. I think it's pretty easy to take this for granted. I really do. Because we, we hear, oh, I'm a, a child of God or I'm a son or a daughter of God. And I think you've heard it for, for maybe some of you for decades. And so you're like, yeah, that's, you know, that's neat, neat. And I'm like, can we, can we do better than neat? Because Ephesians chapter 2 talks about what we were before the blood of Christ. Ephesians 2 says that we were dead in our transgressions and sins. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 4 says we are objects of wrath before the grace of God. Ephesians chapter 2 says we were sons, but not of God, of disobedience. So we were by nature objects of wrath. We were dead in our transgressions and sins, and we were sons of disobedience. And now we're called sons and daughters of the Lord Almighty. Who are we? We're kids of the king. We're children of the living God. I, I think this is so significant, y'all. Do, do you know what everyone in this room desperately wants? Every single person, in, including the guy up on stage. You, you know what we all desperately want? We want approval. We absolutely we want approval on, on both of the kayak trips. So we, we've got these college kids who, who are it's super cool figuring it all out. And, and then we've, we've got this group of, of men who are pretty well established in their careers. They're trying to figure it out too. And, and here's what we're all trying to figure out. Everybody on these kayak trips, they, they struggle with, with different types of sins. They, they struggle with sins of appetite. They struggle with sins of ambition. So, like, appetite would be, like, overeating, overdrinking, looking at porn, all that kind of stuff, and then sins of ambition, like, I want to make a name for myself. I want power. I, I want prestige. I, I want to strive and accomplish and conquer. When, when we, we get into those gutters, you know where that comes from? Eighty-five, ninety of the time, like ask anyone who's been on these trips, they'll tell you. I'm not lying here. 85-90% of the time, the sins of ambition, the sins of appetite, they come from an unmet desire for approval. It happens all the time. Some of you, some of you desperately want your dad's approval. and I, I get that. I mean, I, I, it's, it's, very, it's very common. Some of you want your mom's approval some some of you want your your peers approval that's what we call peer pressure okay like if if you're accommodating if if you're a chameleon because you're looking for approval from your friends that that is peer pressure and that's a desire for approval. Some of you want approval from your spouse like you, you, you're trying to work hard and and, and it you know, you're not home enough and, and there's this tension in the home, and you know, or some of you are, are home enough, but but the spouse is like, Why aren't you making more money? There's a lot of different ways that we seek approval. Some of you are looking for approval from some ambiguous and unknown God, and you're like, I, I think if I work a little bit harder, God will love me. And there's always a little bit harder. And how do you ever know if you've gotten to a point where God loves you and that's not what God says? You just need to know that. Like, God's approval of you has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with Jesus. He died on a cross so that you might be Forgiven of your sins. The blood of Christ covers you. He doesn't see your sin anymore. Jesus paid for those sins. He sees the righteousness of Christ imputed upon you and and there is nothing to gain. That's what the scriptures tell us over and over again and we just don't believe it. Here's a fun fact. You ready for it? The God who created everything in the universe knows everything everything about you. Knows all of your sins, all of your frailties, all of your shame. You're thinking, when is this going to be a fun fact West? I get it. And knowing all of that about you he sent his perfect son to die a sinner's death so that he could adopt you. He could choose to adopt you and call you not just a son or a daughter but my son. My daughter. Does that speak to approval anywhere? Do you see how that matters? We are striving as Christians to gain something that has already been given to us. Don't you don't you see that? God chose you. He adopted you. You are you are a son of God most high. You are a daughter of God most high. That has to matter. What are we? We are the temple of God where the manifest glory of God is most profoundly displayed. Who are we? By the blood of Christ, we are sons and daughters of the living God. How then shall we live? Look at verse 17. Therefore, after you've seen that we are the temple of God in verse 17, after you've seen we are the children of God in verse 18, therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord and touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you. This is actually a quotation of Isaiah chapter 52, verse 11, which talks about Israel coming back from their exile in Babylon. And so, I don't know if you remember this, but the book of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, all that stuff. Israel, because of their terrible sin, is conquered by the Babylonians. And and they they are taken away to Babylon. And they lived for a generation in Babylon. And then the Medo-Persians conquered the Babylonians, and the Medo-Persians are like, okay, you can go back to the Promised Land. God did it. God did it. And and ultimately, when they are coming back, Isaiah 52 is speaking to that time, and, and and they're coming back from exile in Babylon, and God basically says in this verse, when you come home, don't bring Babylon with you. That's what he's saying. Like... I am meeting you in the land that I promised you. You are going to meet me here. Don't bring the junk of that world with you into my presence. I love you. I have provided for you. I will meet you, but I want to meet you in purity. I want to meet you in purity. I, Isaiah, this is actually so cool, Isaiah 52, verse 12. Remember, this was Isaiah 52, 11 that was quoted in Second. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Isaiah fifty-two twelve says, and this is also coming back from Babylon into the promised land. He's, God says, for you shall not go out in haste and you shall not go in flight for the Lord will go before you and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. I think this is amazing. Isaiah fifty-two twelve says, hey, when you come home, You're not going to scurry. You're not going to come with your head down. You're not going to hide in the bushes. You're not going to flee as if the Babylonians are going to chase you because they're not. They're not. God says, I'm going to go ahead of you. When you come to meet me, I'm going to be before you. I'm going to make a path for you. And then nobody's going to chase you because I'm going to be your rear guard. I'm going to be in front of you. I'm going to be behind you. Only God can do that. And there's no reason to come in haste. You walk with your head held high. You be proud, not of yourselves, but of the providence of God, that you are a child of God most high. This speaks to an incredible security, a security that we all possess if we know Jesus. What are we? We are the temple of God. Who are we? We are sons and daughters of God Almighty. How then shall we live? in purity and in security because God goes before us and he protects our flank. That's how we should live. I said earlier that I'm asking Christians to live heroically. I really believe the Christian life when lived well is heroic. I think it's true and I think it's a little bit scary and I understand that fear because when I was in college I became a Christian after my freshman year. And so I'd had one year of pretty much bankrupt existence and I became a Christian like a real Christian, not a cultural Christian. And, and I, was, I was working at this Christian athletic camp and I was, I was trying to contemplate what it looks like to go back to my fraternity house as a Christ follower, as, as a committed Christ follower. It's embarrassing because... I remember, I mean, a bunch of nights at that Christian camp where I, I would literally cry myself to sleep at night because I, I just I couldn't figure out what it was going to look like. It's just part of my story. God God made a way. He gave me incredible friends. He gave me a community that was unbelievable. He gave me a wife that I adore. Um, to walk in purity is still scary. I get it. What I want you to know is is simply this. To do what verse 14 says, do not be unequally yoked, to, to be different. It's a scary truth, but you need to understand that it's a resulting truth. Meaning it, it's not what you think of first. I know it comes first in this passage. But it's undergird by some other things. In other words, I'm not asking you just to suck it up. I'm not asking you to fake it. I'm not asking you to conjure it. Before you do anything outwardly, I'm asking you to believe it. It being the gospel. It being that by the atoning work of Jesus, we are sons and daughters of the almighty God. It being, by the atoning work of Jesus, we are the temple of God. We have been recreated to demonstrate and to manifest his glory. Before you would ever do anything, I want you to celebrate that. I want you to bask In that. I want you to mentally build a swimming pool and swim laps in that. That, That's where our strength is found, is the gospel and, and and the byproducts of it. I want you to enjoy the security that the gospel brings. And then I want you to live accordingly. And you know what accordingly will look like? A heroic life. You won't have to fake it. You'll just live from the security you have, and you'll be able, therefore, in that security to take risks for the gospel. So before you go do anything, I want you to remember who you are. I want you to remember what you are. And then just live accordingly. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would have a deeper, not only understanding of your gospel, but an awareness of your gospel and the ramifications of your gospel. I I pray, God, that it would get deep within our souls. I pray, God, uh, that you would give us a a strength that we desperately lack and desperately need and that you perfectly provide in the gospel so that we might live for your glory. Father, I I pray for the college kids who came on that trip, that, that those who are struggling with that would find hope in your gospel. I pray for the rest of us. Like we're above any of this, God, I pray for me that you would give me the strength that your gospel provides, that I might lovingly and boldly proclaim and live your truth, that my life and that our lives might glorify you. God, please, I beg you that that would be how we respond to your gospel, how we glorify you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.